If you remember last time we said that Christ didn't have anything to criticize the church over, nothing to say, but I have this against you. And we said the reason for that was not that they were perfect, but that they recognized their sin and they were seeking to address their sin. So Christ was not coming to say to them, hey, you've got it wrong, this is what you need to be doing, but rather to say to them, I encourage you, carry on, push on, do even more what you're doing now. When we come to this letter, the story is different. Here, there are things that they're not taking seriously. There are things that they're not doing. And so Christ has to say to them, but I hold this against you. This, this is not right. And you're not bothered about it. You're not addressing it. We said last time that uh, in these letters, there is a reason why Jesus introduces himself in the way that he does in the opening verse. Um, he tends to introduce himself in a way that has relevance to either the challenge he's going to bring or the promise that he's going to make to the church. And so when we read here in the opening verse the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, we sort of know that we're in for some uh, words of, of challenge by the Lord. Uh, we've already encountered this two-edged sword back in chapter 1, verse 16. It's coming out of Christ's mouth. It's his word. And it's his word that is two-edged. It both cuts and challenges and destroys sin and at the same time defends the child of God. It's both an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. And here Christ says to the church, I'm speaking to you as the one who wields that sword. But first let's see a little bit of Pergamon. Uh, it's the home of parchment. It's there up on the coast of uh, Turkey up above Smyrna and uh, Ephesus um, it's where parchment was um, invented uh, there's the Acropolis it rises some uh, 1,300 feet above the lowest city or its position some 1,300 feet above the lowest city uh, it became the centre of a large kingdom in the 3rd century BC and retained its status throughout New Testament times the library 200,000 volumes. They say we live in a post-literate society, don't they? They didn't. They were big into reading and of course they would have been parchments, they uh, would have been substantial uh, documents, uh, second only in its size to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, the books were made of parchment which of course was developed there in the city. Theatre sits on the edge of the city's Acropolis. Uh, they reckon seated some 10,000 people idolatrous worship, the very thing that Christ is going to challenge his church over. Temple of Athena, uh, Serapium, Temple of the ancient Egyptian god of healing, uh, especially blindness. Asclepian, uh, built in the 4th century BC as a temple to the god of healing, surrounded by these temples to false gods. Uh, even more, uh, the altar to Zeus, the stairs, columns and sides stood 40 foot high and the temple of Dionysus uh, sited on the side of the theatre stage. That's Pergamon. And it's to the church there that Jesus Christ writes. Well, you say, well, that's very different to us today. Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Certainly, uh, the God's names have changed. The altars and temples have turned into mosques and uh, temples. The theatres have changed into football pitches and pubs. But the sexual freedom and the false religions, of course, remain and flourish. 
So let's see what Christ has to say. And again, he starts off with what he can commend them for. Christ always seeks to commend his people uh, for what they've got right. Uh, Yes, he's got to address the things that they've got wrong, and that's primarily why he needs to write to them. But his heart, his desire is always to commend us for what we've got right. And verse 13, he does that. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He knows exactly how hard it has been for them. My friends, that is an amazing encouragement, isn't it? He knows the persecution his children are going through. He knows the materialistic world in which they're living. He knows the level of atheism that they're constantly surrounded by and bombarded by. He knows the political correctness that is constantly pressuring us to renounce Christ. He knows the gender issues. He knows all that we face today. He would say, I know the place where you live where Satan is. And he knows how they've stood their ground even under persecution. He notices they didn't renounce their faith in him. My friend, do you realise that? When you stand up in your place of work and you speak for Christ, Christ notes that. When you don't bottle it and keep quiet about your faith, or even worse, deny your faith, Christ knows it. When you find yourself uh, having to defend Jesus in front of your friends, Christ knows it. When you refuse to blaspheme his name and swear as others do, Christ notes it. He is fully aware of the pressures you're under. He's fully aware of where you're living and he's fully aware of how you stand for him in that hard place. And if we should ever find ourselves in a place where brothers and sisters around us are being martyred for their faith, he notes not only their, the act of martyrdom and not only their faith unto death, but our faith in standing firm for Christ when that's happening next to us. Did you see that? Antipas is the one who's died. But he says, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Not only did Antipas get it right and stand firm even unto death, but you got it right in continuing to identify yourself as my children at that very hard time. So much they got right. But friend, here's the challenge. Getting 95% right doesn't justify us being indifferent to the 5% that's wrong. It isn't some sort of balancing act as Christians. We can never get to the point of saying, well, I know I've got that bit wrong, but look at all the stuff I'm getting right, and I'm content with that, and I won't worry about the bit I've got wrong. That's what this church was doing. They were blind to the bit that they were still getting wrong. They were so aware of the persecution, they were so aware of their need for their witness, they were so aware of all the false religions around them that they were trying to stand for Christ in and win people out of for Christ. They weren't bothering about the sin that was lurking there in their lives. So let me ask you a question, or rather ask you the obvious question of are you getting a lot right for Christ? Let me ask you the harder question. In the midst of all that you're getting right for Christ, are you still concerned about the bit you're getting wrong? Because that's where this church was failing. They weren't concerned about the bit they were getting wrong. And hence Christ has to say to them, but I hold this against you. You, you, You're not concerned about something you should be concerned about. Does it still grieve you 
the bit you get wrong? Is it still a matter that you come before God in prayer over each day? Is it still a matter that you fight over each day? Because if your experience is anything like mine, and I I can only believe it must be, you're going to be fighting that battle for the rest of your life. And that's Paul's experience, wasn't it? The good I would, I do not do. The evil that I would not, this I find myself doing. I find this law at work within me, he says. That, That there's just this constant daily fight to be holy as our God is holy so see what they got wrong verses 14 to 15 they've forgotten what is supposed to be their distinctiveness as Christians they're living in a pagan world they're surrounded by false religions and people who follow the practices of false religions and they've forgotten that they're supposed to stand out as distinctly different two things he brings against them Idolatry and immorality. This is how Peter describes how we should be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Isn't that an amazing picture of the Christian? Peter says that's who we are. Let me read it again. A chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. He says that's who you are in order that you can do the work that Christ has given you to do, which is to proclaim the glory of God. That's what they weren't doing. Christ points them back to the Old Testament to understand his charge against them. He points them back to Balaam and Barak. And we know what happens to them because it's there in Numbers 24 to 25. This is how it reads. Then Balaam got up and returned home and Balak went his own way. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to, to, the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. They were surrounded by this idolatrous worship. They were invited to join in and participate in it, and they did. And God's anger burned against them because of it. So firstly, idolatry, verse 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who talk back to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols. Seems so little, doesn't it? They're in a really hard place. There are even Christians being martyred for their faith in the city. They've got all these false religions, all these temples to false gods they're having to contend with. And Christ picks out this, which we might think so small a thing, and says, I've got this charge against you. My friends, it isn't a small thing. It's a massive thing. And yet, is it any wonder that it started to happen? They're surrounded. They've got the Temple of Athena, the Temple of Serapium, the Temple of Isclepium, the Temple of Dionysus. And towering over it all, they've got the altar of Zeus. And many of them who've become Christians have come out of that false religion and they're spending their time trying to evangelize those who are still in those religions. So is it any wonder that compromise and, and bits of that have started to creep into the church? 
Isn't that exactly the problem that we face today as the church? We live in a multi-faith, pluralistic society and we're constantly being told that we mustn't be narrow, we, we, mu- we mustn't speak as Christianity being the only way to God. Uh, and increasingly around us we find that our culture is being shaped by these other religions our television programs are being shaped by it our papers are being shaped by it our education systems being shaped by it our political scenes being shaped by it even the foods we buy are now halal meat because it's got to fit in with the beliefs of other religions and slowly but surely the church starts to compromise on its distinctiveness as the ones who worship Christ and Christ only. According to the 2011 census that the government conducted, Christianity is now down to 59% of the population. doesn't mean 59% of Christians, of course they're not nothing like, but only 59% now would class themselves as Christians. That is down 10% in 10 years since 2001. But we now have 14 million atheists, 2.7 million Muslims, that's 4.8% of the population, the fastest rising group, 0.8 million Hindus, 0.4 million Sikhs, 0.3 million Jews, 170 distinct religions now in the UK according to the census. We live in this seething pot of religion, And in that, we are called to be distinctly Christ's. And this church had forgotten that. They were starting to accept wrong ideas. They were starting to accept wrong beliefs. They were starting to compromise on that distinctiveness. And slowly but surely, the church in Britain has done the same. We now have many churches that hold joint services across denominations, even across religions. We, we, we have uh, multi-faith services, we have shared buildings, we have joint witness events, all in the name, and love, uh, name of love and unity, where in reality, says Christ, it is the work of Satan in that place. Listen to how God spoke right back in Exodus. In my personal Bible readings I've just gone through or I'm in the middle of the law but I've just gone through the Ten Commandments and and it does us good to remember how God speaks first to his people isn't it when he first calls them to be his people listen to how he speaks Exodus 20 verse 1 and God spoke all these words saying I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am Yahweh your God am a jealous God. Unless you're making the mistake of thinking well that's Old Testament does that still apply today? Absolutely yes it does. Listen to how God speaks to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6 16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. My friends, we're called to move in the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And the trouble is the church in our generation is increasingly becoming a church of the world as well as a church in the world. Let me ask you a question and please don't rush to answer it. Are you in danger of compromising the things that we should be holding dear as a Christian out of your desire to win someone for Christ or out of your desire to be able to come alongside someone for Christ? It's it's a very real temptation. You know that we so want to see that person saved. We so want to see that person knowing and loving Christ. That we start to compromise our distinctiveness. Mistaken idea that somehow that we can get closer to them and we can make them feel warmer towards Christ. You know, we we won't put up such big barriers. We'll, We'll sort of make it easier for them. And all we actually do is compromise on the very thing that God has called us and made it clear we cannot compromise on. Idolatry. And then there's immorality. End of verse 14. And practice sexual immorality, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've already met the teaching of the Nicolaitans, haven't we, in the letter to Ephesus. The difference is there, they stood against it. Here they're not standing against it, they're embracing it. And the Nicolaitans were teaching, if it feels good, do it. You know, that you don't need to be sexually clean. You don't, you don't need to do things right with your body. And here's this church, and probably because of all the pagan things that are happening and practices that are happening all around them, have lost the edge and they're starting to say, no, perhaps it doesn't matter. We can do that and still be right with God. They held with the teaching of these people. My friend, is there a danger that we might start holding with the teaching of those who are not Christians? They can sound so plausible at times, can't they? They can sound so right at times by human wisdom and human reasoning. We say, yeah, there's a lot to be said for what they're saying there. And they're very committed and they're very devout and they're very serious. And they are. But my friends, you can be devoutly wrong. And as Christians, we're supposed to see that and we're supposed to identify that and we're supposed to say, no, we do not touch that. We do not go there. I was talking to Terry last Sunday night after the service. We were talking about kayaking. And uh, he was telling me about once when uh, he was sea kayaking and uh, trying to cross the entrance where this river came into the sea and he said it was ridiculous. He said it took me about 20 minutes to get from, and he was sort of indicating something like the, uh, the width of this chapel, or maybe a little bit longer. Um, he said it took me about 20 minutes battle. He said I was canoeing as hard as I possibly could, uh, making no headway at all. He said I, I just found myself sort of going backwards all the time. He said I eventually did get through it, and I landed, and he said there was a coast guard just there, and he said I was quite expecting him to tick me off, uh, but he said, but he didn't. But doesn't it feel like that sometimes as Christians? that we're putting all of our effort into getting where we know God wants us to go and yet in reality we we feel that we're always standing still or even getting pushed backwards by the tide that's against us. 
And that tide gets stronger every year, doesn't it? But Christ says, but I know that battle. I understand where you're at. Make the stand. No idolatry, no immorality. My friends, they need to see us as Christ in this world today, don't they? Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. That's an amazing statement by Jesus, isn't it? Because he says in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. Christ is the light of the world. But now he turns around to his followers and says, you now are the light in the world. I'm, I'm leaving it. The light that they will have, the light they will see, the image of what Christianity is all about, will now be carried by you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How are they going to know Christ if they don't see it in the behaviour and attitudes and language of the ones who claim to be Christians? How are they going to know? How are they going to be saved? And Christ says, look, you are now out there to take the role that I had while I was here on earth. You are to be the light and you are to shine so that they will see it and glorify God. Listen to Peter writing this time in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We started off tonight, didn't we, singing holy, holy, holy. The one attribute of God that's three times stated in Scripture, the only attribute. It never says love, love, love. It, it never says omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. It says holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God says, my calling to you who are my children is that you should bear the image of your Father, that you should be holy in this world in which you live as obedient children. And that's a battle, isn't it? Is there any one of us would dare to raise our hands and suggest we're even 90% of the way there? But the point is this church wasn't bothered about it. The church at Smyrna was, so God says, I, I haven't got anything to challenge you with. You already recognise that you're already doing it. No, the problem here is that they haven't got a concern about it. They're not fighting the battle. And Christ says, you've got to fight it. I suggest to you it's so insidious in our culture and generation. You start watching a program on TV and it's an absolutely innocent program. And if you're anything like me, when a new series of something starts, you watch it almost with your finger on the button ready to switch it off, just waiting for the swearing and the homosexuality and all the rest of it to come into it. And you get through to the end of it and you think, well, there wasn't any, that's good. So you watch the second episode and that's fine and then you start to relax. And the first series is fine and then the second series starts and usually straight away it all starts 
But by that time you're hooked. And you want to carry on watching it because you've started watching it. And before you know where you are, I remember, do you know, I remember Emmerdale Farm when I was at school. That shows how many years it's been going, doesn't it? And I used to watch it. I used to go home lunchtime, so I used to eat my sandwiches at home, and I used to watch Emmerdale Farm. Do you know what it was about? It was about farming. It was about sheep and cattle and, and, you know, them taking them to market and them going and rescuing the sheep that were stuck in the fields. And how it's changed. And yet Christians who started watching it have not shown that discernment to say, hang around a minute, this is changing, we've got to stop. But have just carried on and suddenly you're taking into your mind and into your heart all the things that are anti-Christian. All the sexual perversions, all the wrong lifestyles, all the wrong attitudes, and you're feeding on it. Notice, Peter, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy. So thirdly, here's Christ's promised reward if they will repent and return. Repentance and reward. They've got a choice. They've got a decision that they've got to make. Did you see it there? Verse 16. Uh, how, how does he put it? Therefore repent. They've got a choice. They can choose to repent or they can choose not to repent. They can choose to take this seriously and heed God's word or they can just choose to carry on the way they're going. And in their minds they can justify carrying on the way they're going, I guess, as they have done up until now. We're doing pretty well. We're standing up for Christ. We're living in a hard place. People are getting martyred around us and we're still identifying ourselves with the church. But Jesus says that's not enough. You've got to make a decision. And that decision is that you've got to repent. And he says if you won't make that decision, there will be consequences for it. Repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I will come and I will fight those who are immoral and idolatrous within this body, says the Lord. Do you praise God for his grace in giving us time to repent? Isn't it something that we should always be praising God for? That he says, I'll give you tomorrow to repent. Be the next day to repent. He doesn't come straight away and deal with us according to what our sin deserves. He gives us time to recognize it, to repent it, to turn from it. And let's be honest, we have to do that over and over and over again through the rest of our lives. But that's what God desires of us. It's when we get to the point of saying, I'm no longer interested in repenting this sin, I'm no longer bothered about this sin, I'm no longer committed to fighting this sin, then, says Christ, I will come and fight you. Look at verse 17. He opens this up to all of us, doesn't he? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? You read that and you say, and what's that all about? Well, hidden manna. What was manna? Manna was food from heaven. 
The bread that came down from heaven, that fed the Israelites through all their wanderings in the wilderness, that they had to keep some of as a permanent reminder of how God had provided for them. And then as we come into the New Testament, how does Jesus apply that to himself? I am the bread of life. Feed on me, he says. And here he's making that promise. If you will repent, I will be to you all that you need. I will be your sufficiency. I will be your food. I will satisfy you in every way you desire. If you will be holy. John six thirty two. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the hidden manna. The world doesn't see it. The world doesn't understand it. But God's people do. Christ says, I will give you myself and your joy will be complete in me if you will but be holy as I am holy. And I will give you a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Apparently it was practiced in those days and under Roman, Brit, uh, Roman occupation, Roman world, uh, that people gave tesserae to each other, um, a stone, and on that stone something would be written, and that was effectively, you know these days you have um, sort of electronic door openers, you know, you sort of go up to the door and you wave your card at it and the door opens. That was the first century equivalent. If you wanted to go and visit someone and the servant came to the door, you presented this tesserae. It was a uh, a, a sort of like a business card that you would give out a day. This is the, the person here has invited me. This is my entrance. And Christ says, I will give every child of mine who is serious about holiness a white card, a white stone, one that is pure, one that is untarnished, one that, one that is from me. And that will give them access into a new place. It's got a new name written on it. Not somewhere that you know here on earth. This will be your access into eternity. This will be your access into heaven. This will be your access into my very presence when you die, says Jesus. And I will give you that. And that will be yours. And you will have that and you will hold it. And you will know that Christ welcomes me into his home. Because... I've tried to live a holy life. I, I've examined my life repeatedly and when I see that I fail, I pray with him, I plead with him, I strive to honour him, to be holy as he is holy. We're going to sing together, O great God of highest heaven.